0: The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. Today I'm joined by James Gearing. James is an author, a former firefighter of 14 years, a former stuntman, a husband and a father, and the founder and host of the Behind the Shield podcast. He is someone I value as a mentor of sorts in this podcast world. When the idea for this podcast was in its infancy, I reached out to James to ask a few questions. I sent him a message on Instagram basically asking, is my idea even worth pursuing? Within minutes, he responded with a resounding yes, and even passed his phone number on with directions to call. That call turned into an hour of do's and don'ts for podcast. His guidance and support has been invaluable since then. Recently, I was in Florida for a vacation, and not only did James agree to record with me, but he opened his house to me. What follows is our free flow conversation on a few key topics in the fire service today. This episode comes complete with James' two dogs making a few guest appearances, I want to take this moment to thank James for the openness, the guidance, and the time he's spent talking with me. If you haven't heard his show yet, go find it, follow, and listen. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at thethingsweallcarry or email mystory at thethingsweallcarry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Cool. So, like I said, we can just start with. Now I did that. I readjust everything. We'll just start with a little bit of history. Okay. I'm not gonna do a huge introduction. I'm pretty easygoing. I gotta tell you, first of all, I'm a little nervous today, so I apologize. So I'm just very appreciative that you that you agreed to let me come in and talk to you.
1: So thank That'll you. Brother Firefighters. That's all there is to it.
0: I appreciate it. And I'm going to introduce my audience to you, James Gearing out of Behind the Shield podcast. Behind the Shield 911, correct? Oh, that's just
1: the Instagram handle we have. Okay. So the the, the so. podcast is Behind the Shield.
0: Okay. I'll let you talk about a little bit where you come from and how you ended up in Florida, in Ocala, Florida, where we're sitting today.
1: Yeah. So I am originally from England. I spent 27 years there. Very long story very short. I had dreamt of becoming a firefighter and was told during an annual school physical that I was colorblind so I could never be a firefighter pilot etc etc. Fumbled my way through life for quite a long time, ended up becoming a stuntman of all things and was overseas in Japan working as a stuntman. And I met a girl. She was American, so we moved here and right before I moved here I saw an article in Muscle and Fitness on a Miami-Dade firefighter, and I just had this kind of reawakening. This is ridiculous. I know I can see color. So, when I got there, I ended up moving not even five miles from an amazing fire academy. So I just said, "Screw it! I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go for it, and I'll figure out the medical." So when it got to the color vision thing, I said, "Hey, I'm only gonna be able to see some of your book, but you point anything in this room, I'll be able to tell you what color it is, and the rest is history." So. That was two thousand when did I come here? two and then I graduated from fire academy two thousand and four. How old were you when you went through the academy so I was I think I was 27. Okay. So, I'm not old, a little bit older than some of the high school grads.
0: How long do you serve in the
1: fire service then? So, I spent a total of 14 years. Okay. Yeah, I started in Hialeah, Florida, just outside Miami. Yeah. An amazing academy. We were hired as a bunch of non certs, and then about half of us had all our stuff. So, they sent the rest of the civilians through fire and EMT. And they literally beat the shit out of us for three months straight while they were going to school. So that bar, and I talk about this a lot, that bar was set so hard, so high at the front door. My academy was great too. So by the time I went into the fire service, the expectations in my own head were pretty, pretty high. Yeah, Florida does it a little different from
0: Virginia. And I'm
1: not sure how the
0: rest of the country does it. In Virginia, each county trains up. There's each county has their own academy. And so I know in Virginia or in Florida there's a bit of that where you get trained before you get to an academy, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the way it works in in Florida and California as well, unlike for example New York, London, where they're looking for all these civilians and then they hire them and then they put them through. The best way of getting hired is you pay for your own way through fire academy. You normally starts with EMT school first. You do EMT, then you go to fire school, and then when you come out, now you start testing. So after that, now you're going to go through a whole new orientation with that new department. So I worked for four departments in the end. So I don't know how many years I've spent as a probie, but it's a lot.
0: (laughs) If you work for four departments, that's a lot of probie years. (laughs) No, thank you. I I myself, I was 44 when I went through the academy. So it's interesting to, for me going through as a a 44-year-old is completely different from those guys going through as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old. And it was amazing to see. So what brought you out of What made
1: you make the decision to leave the fire service? For everyone listening, if you hear whining in the back, that's not me whining about this interview. It's about, it's <laughs> my German Shepherd is in a crate. Really what happened, I know this is where you and I stand shoulder to shoulder. So about 10 years into my career, I started attending funeral after funeral. And it wasn't one thing. That was what was scary. It was, it was autoimmune disease, heart attacks, strokes, suicide, overdose. And Coming from a background as an exercise physiology graduate, as a coach, as an athlete, I knew that there were solutions, but they weren't in the fire service. I myself am not an an expert in any way, shape, or form, but I felt like I knew enough to find the real experts and maybe ask good questions. I'd been really loving Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, Squad Room, Barbell Shrug, the old Barbell Shrug, and I listened to people like Kurt Parsley and sebastian junger and i'm like jesus these this is what we need to hear but sadly in the fire service what tends to happen whether it's peer support whether it's the physical side is someone will go away do a weekend class and come back as the quote-unquote expert yeah which as we all know just on pure time immersed in something is not going to really give create an expert so i decided to start a podcast so this was I like said so 10 years into my career, so six years ago now. So I was doing this while I was on shift. And about four years ago, I had torn my meniscus and just rehabbed back to full duty again. I'd, I'd hurt my back, I'd rehabbed with no surgery at all. The meniscus on both knees ended up being slipped, but I got myself back. But I was at a crossroads where I was seeing now the podcast is being listened by thousands of people. The department I worked for last was horrendous for lack of a better I think one of my one of the best departments in the country is Anaheim and I work for them and then I think one of the worst was probably the last one so I had a real understanding of the spectrum in between and I just felt like I could do more good now with 14 years under my belt being the voice for the fire service rather than riding a rig running one mainly BLS call at a time and occasionally truly saving a life. And so I basically cashed out my retirement four years ago, gave myself a salary, only had enough for a year and a half, and then (laughs) I was done. And so that was it. So I transitioned out. Thank God I started getting sponsors right at that one and a half year mark. But that that was a journey. So four years ago, I actually transitioned out the fire service, and I realized... When you work, when you're wearing a uniform, your hands are tied. You can't speak freely. I'm not talking about talking shit. I'm talking about proactively bringing issues to light. And that really made me realize it was the right decision. Because not only for my own, for personal health as well, Walk in the walk as I talk about the mental and physical health impact of this job. So I wanted to preserve my own health, but also to now take the gloves off and actually say the things that need to be said and bring the experts on to bring solutions to those problems. Yeah, you definitely do
0: that. You bring those experts, you bring those people well-versed in these therapies or these approaches or the physical aspect. And it's fascinating to listen to, whether it be exercise, sleep, nutrition, whatever. It's been fascinating to listen to. I'll go back to the point you made of when you're in the service, it's hard to be a voice because there's some things that you're going to, or that I know that I speak about that gets frowned upon and gets laughed at, or you become a target because you do speak about it. I think one of the main things is the psychedelics. And I, we, I listened to the show and I know that you're an advocate for the psychedelics and we've had the discussion about it, that. I'm also an advocate and what have you found with, when you've talked about psychedelics, what have you been finding with people?
1: So I'll give you a parallel, not so much with psychedelics, but with the Drug prohibition laws with the subject of addiction, with many of these areas. Early on the podcast, I would have this conversation about that, especially with the military. I'd say, "What were you seeing as far as that overseas?" And it was very tight-lipped. And there was like a paradigm shift about three years ago, where it went from "We can't tell you" to basically the the illicit drug trade is paying for this terrorists. This is this was funding a lot of this. And with the psychedelics, I've seen that shift as well my own personal experiences i haven't had as we talked before we start recording i've i played with them in japan years ago where they were legal and enjoyed them had fun but it was not a therapeutic thing it wasn't something that i was going to from a mental health side it was just recreational my whole thing has always been this if something works we need to be talking about it i can't stand marijuana just because it makes me feel like shit. But I see it work for so many people. CBD is amazing. The THC side as well. I see it work for so many people. So you and I have pulled the sheets over so many people that have died from opioid overdose. Why would you not advocate for something that you physically cannot overdose on. You're going to you overdose on the Doritos you eat after Possibly, so that. But as firefighters we're probably going to overdose on those anyway. Right? Exactly. <laughs> but on the way eating habits go. <laughs> but with the psychedelics, especially the SEAL community, that was a real big thing with the Ibogaine, game, which I you know is kind of like the nuclear option as Marcus Capone puts it, but just hearing the story and these men, in this case men, were so deep into it. They were not suicide ideation. They'd made plans. They had near misses of taking their own lives and to come out the other side with the other work that goes along with it why would you not do it? We have all these prescribed psychiatric meds that work on a few people don't work on most people so again because of our completely outdated drug prohibition laws that I've talked about this a lot were founded on racism and job justification anyway to have people who've served their communities in their cities and counties or served their country have to go to another country to get Treatment that's working, we have to. We have to just have a blank canvas again, and then put everything back the way it's supposed to. So for me, when I see something else that's working, it doesn't have to be about me. It shouldn't be about me. Right. If it's working for someone else, and it's plant medicine for Christ's sake, we need to be talking about it.
0: In going back to marijuana, we just got lucky enough in our county that it's been taken off of the drug panel for us. In and- if we have a medical marijuana card, you, uh, you're you free to use, basically. And obviously, we're not using it before duty or on duty yeah. and we're not supposed to be smoking it, but there, but cannabis is now become an option for us, which is a huge step forward. In my opinion, it's going to help with sleep. It's going to help with anxiety, with stress, whatever. It, there's a lot of things that can help with, but my first reaction was we can't stop there. We need to push something. We need to push forward with other things. And I do agree with you. I think drug prohibition needs to be abolished and needs to be repealed because we're not doing anything but hurting everybody else.
1: Yeah. When you look at what we see, we see the overdoses which is the obvious thing you see the homelessness and a lot of homelessness you can relate to addiction because ultimately addiction is filling the void of mental health issues prostitution there may be there will always be some people that they choose that's how they're going to make their money but how many do it purely because it's paying for their next fix you look at the border issues that we have in this country why are people fleeing mexico You know what I mean? Haiti. It's not so much the drugs were there, but I just went there on a cruise. One of the most beautiful places on planet Earth I've ever seen. I've traveled a lot. So imagine if you could, through diplomacy, positively affect that country. So now tourism is that main thing. You would affect violence in that country, too. So our prohibition laws have spread far and wide. We force countries like UK and Australia and so many other places to follow suit. And we are also responsible for the issues in Colombia, the issues mm. in Mexico. So that one person, Harry Anslinger, and his cronies in the 30s, <laughs> the death and destruction they've caused in almost 100 years. And now I think there's finally starting to be an awakening. And I hope, and we talked about it, I think on messaging about Tozi Gabbard. Yes. I think she's amazing. I think she's the kind of person that would actually bring something to the, something like this to light. Because... It's only caused pain. All the so much that we see, the police, the fire, corrections, we're all dealing with this now, 90 years later. So it's not only going to save lives in all those different areas, but it's also going to open the door for the plant medicine world to save so many more lives in a therapeutic
0: way. And you look at something like ketamine. Ketamine is approved in all 50 states for therapeutic use. And that's I don't know why as first responders that shouldn't be available to us. So my argument to, to a fire chief when I've sat down with them is we need to do everything. We need to make every option available to our firefighters, especially after a traumatic call. So I had a crew, we had a crew, I don't know, probably a year and a half ago now run a infant CPR right out of the gate on zero six in the morning. I firmly believe a, a crew like that should have been taken out of service for the day, offered whatever therapy they prefer replaced with a different crew and then given the day off and come back the next shift if ready. And something like a, a ketamine therapy or any kind of a guided therapy or even just a regular therapy session needed to be offered to these people and not just, hey, go home and deal with it or not, excuse me, stay on shift and deal with it. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that you worked for what you felt was the best department in the country. So one of the best, yes. Yeah. So, one of the best. What makes it one of the best or
1: what made it one of the best? So Anaheim... I'm getting attacked by a dog. By the way. <laughs> these dogs have been such a pain in the ass for this interview. <laughs> so, what made it the best was simply the bar that was set. And it's funny because we talk about the hiring crisis, and I see departments lowering their standards in this false belief that you will now have all these people coming in because you made the bar lower. What I saw was the complete opposite. And Anaheim's a perfect example of that. So, when I tested, there were a thousand applicants for 30 spots. It, but each one of those applicants was a certified firefighter, EMT or paramedic, and they pretty much all had either volunteer firefighting experience or ambulance operator or both. So a solid resume. And on top of that, their probation, you had three tests, really in-depth tests. There was a physical portion. There was a you know, like a written portion, I believe, as well. And through that probationary year, we lost about 25% of each class through attrition. Even
0: though they've all had these certificates to begin with. Exactly.
1: So you've already got a high level of candidate before. And Anaheim's thing was, thank you so much. There are other departments, you'll be an asset to them. You're just not right for Anaheim. And so by having a department that was like this kind of gold standard firstly when you pass probation you'd been through this crucible so there was an element of respect for the rookies that came out through that secondly I was funny I remember when I tested to come back east the guy at the CPAT test center was like you're the first person I've ever met that's left Anaheim fire department which is that speaks a lot too but then so between the high bar set the bar on probation that philosophy that mentality carried through so you had great firefighters engineers captains battalion chiefs and don't get me wrong, not every single person was a rock star, but the concentration of motivated firefighters in that department was higher than I've seen anywhere else. And I think that's a, huge, a testament to what works. You set the bar high at the door, you, are, and also the camaraderie in there, the brotherhood and sisterhood was excellent too. So what we're seeing at the moment is a push towards the opposite, and what are we also seeing? The emergence of the Black Union, the Latin—I mean, for fuck's sake—you have the word Union and then a division word next to it. That's right? The Union—that's what's emerging from 18 and a heartbeat departments. I think if you're—if now no, don't get me wrong—if you're not hiring certain groups, then shame on you. That needs to be fixed. But when you suffer together, it doesn't matter of your sexuality, sex, color, creed, whatever. You have a unified people that are proud to wear that badge, and that's what I saw in Anaheim too.
0: Oh. Speaking of the unions, and that's a great subject because this is one I haven't gotten on to, into on the show yet. There's a division in my department between union and non-union because it's a right-to-work state, and so they don't have to be part of the union to to reap the benefits. But there's a delineation oh, between.
1: Oh, oh, is that empty anyway? It's empty.
0: Sorry, man. There's a delineation between brothers in the union and coworkers in the fire department which to me is atrocious. I think that to break it down that way doesn't make sense to me just because somebody pays dues and somebody doesn't.
1: Yeah. What I mean I, what I'm seeing is the principle of the unions is incredible. But what I have seen and bearing in mind I have worked for several departments seen different unions there tends to be if you're not careful an element of self-serving in union leadership which then As we see in you know administrations and all these other things too, there's then a disconnect between what the men and women actually need and what these people are fighting for. So that's what worries me. Is I think there's a kind of becoming a stronger anti-union sentiment because a lot of unions just aren't doing what we're paying them for. And I'll give you a perfect example: the IFF. I was a union pay member my whole career, and I start a podcast because I'm sick of burying my friends, and I stumble across sleep deprivation and some of these other areas. And then I take a step back and go, the people that I've paid for 14 years haven't even addressed the work week in the fire service, the most basal thing that most unions do. And we have anywhere from what I would consider the most progressive shift, which would be 42 hour work week, 24, 72 or a version of, all the way through to our federal firefighters that are on -on one-on-one off 72 hours a week Mm -hmm. now i get some departments may be a little bit busier than others but let's take the median the average urban or suburban firefighter is probably working 56 48 56 hour work week 24 on 48 off and in 2022 that hasn't been resolved yet that we haven't said our industry standard as firefighters is 24 let's say 72 if they go for that i think that would be ember
0: jesus christ
1: (laughs) she's she's 11 months (laughs) that that would be that would give our men and women enough rest and recovery to get as close to normal by the time we return to shift again so how can you push a pro-union narrative when your union hasn't even done the most basal things, when the mental health solution is one center in the very northeast corner of the country that can only accommodate mm-hmm. X amount of people that costs X thousand dollars to go to in 2022. You know yeah. what I mean? So that's the problem I have. Is it's not, I'm pro-union philosophy. But are the men and the women in those positions actually doing what we're asking them to? And I'm going to say that it, there's probably
0: a, there's a good dose of both sides of that coin. They are doing some really good things for us. But I can tell you that in my department three years ago went from a 24:48 with a Kelly to the 56 hour work week where we are doing the 72 hours in a week they like to call it 56 but we do 72 because we do day on day off day on day off day on four off there's no recovery in there i know you get people say but you get four days off okay you do but that first day is total recovery i don't care how many calls you run your sleep is completely screwed up because you're up at all kinds of Times you you get up for work earlier than you get up to go home, and so you'd never get a routine going. The routine is chaos. So that first day is recovery, and then that last day is just trying to get yourself ready for the next shift or the next tour. It's a horrendous schedule, and I'm not going to belabor that point too much. But in my case, we actually took a step backwards on our schedule instead of taking a step forward on our schedule. And I can't blame the union for
1: all of that, but they they did they did play their part. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the problem. Is as you probably know, I bring a lot of people on. To discuss sleep because it, only in the fire service do we think that it's okay that the person who bags our groceries when we go buy stuff for lunch and dinner tops out at 40 hours. But you and I that will wake up at 3 in the morning, climb a ladder or whatever we're responding to and then work a PD code. And that's okay for us to work 56 if we even get to go home and don't have to work, as we said, a 70-plus-hour week. If you ask any normal person, they would be like, no, that's insane. I don't want that person being the one that I'm relying on to save my child. with well, that's exactly what we're doing. So that's why I feel like with the union conversation, they found themselves off course somehow. It's not one in, one individual, and this is the problem. is when an organization gets too big, sometimes it just gets diluted. But if we're not having the sleep conversation, the work week conversation, then we're missing the elephant in the room in the cancer conversation, in Mm -hmm. the mental health conversation, in the injury conversation, in the obesity. All these things fit for duty mentally and physically. We're missing it if we're not giving our men and women the rest and recovery that they need. And as, as I always point out, pick your favorite athlete, whatever it is, whatever sport you love. And then if they didn't sleep every third day, do you think that would fly in the NFL, the UFC, or anything else? Of course not. No,
0: that would be a disaster. Oh, I just lost my train mm-hmm. of thought. See, good? thank goodness for editing. <laughs> I do the same thing. <laughs> what was I going to say? We're talking about unions and going no, to the there, different work week. There was something, no, I know what it was. You talked about the uh, going to funerals when you were deciding to get out. It that six years in, you realized you were going to funeral after funeral. One you slipped in there that I don't think is being discussed enough, and I do this, I mentioned this for a personal reason, is the autoimmune. And I'm just learning that there's a tentative connection between firefighters and increased risk with ALS. And so I don't know what the autoimmune disease that you were talking about uh, back then was. and If it was ALS, that'd be interesting. But we have a volunteer chief who is suffering with a- ALS right now. He's battling. It's a. It's an insidious disease that just takes everything away from you and I'm interested to know if if you've looked at any of those risks or if you've discussed any of those risks with any of the experts
1: yeah I had a LA firefighter on the show who's battling ALS right now okay a couple of things it seems like head trauma is also a contributing factor so he was I think he was I think he was a pro before he became a firefighter so obviously he had a lot of impacts there but going back to the sleep deprivation again I made sure this was still the case. I was asked my most recent uh, neuroscientist that came on to make sure nothing had changed. When you have a TBI, there's a demyelination of the, mm-hmm. the sheath, the nerve sheath. When you don't sleep, there's a demyelination of the nerve sheath. So it's the same injury. Well, yeah. So you might have compounding. I've been a combat athlete for a long time, a stunt man, so I get my head smacked all over the place. <laughs> but then you add that sleep deprivation every third day. and. Perfect example, with the cancer conversation, we look at carcinogen. Again, I can't stand the kind of poo-pooing of the clean cab concept. Of course, we're not going to be sterilizing everything. No. But if your gear is off-gassing, when you're putting stuff that's against your skin, radio straps and stuff, that's just fucking common sense. It is. But my last place ran almost no fires. Ultimately, they they had the duty to protect on the fire side, which is why training should have been so important, and it wasn't, sadly. But it was mainly EMS calls that we were running. And they lost so many fucking people to cancer. So if it was just carcinogens in fires, then they should have had no one. But the, what they did was run their ass off 24 hours a day yes. running these bullshit calls. A lot of them really were. And so therefore, we were losing them too. So when you look at the mental health and or the actual health of the brain, the autoimmune side, the brain literally regenerates when we sleep. It takes a bath, basically. And so that is going to flush out all the dead cells. I'm being very kind of basal with this description. And process the thoughts that we've seen and done that day. And then you kind of have a reset. If you think that doesn't happen every third day, there's going to be continued, what's the right word? There's an amplification of the inflammation. Every time you don't sleep, you're a little bit more inflamed, a little bit more inflamed. And then autoimmune disease basically is for inflammation, extreme reaction. So. That's what I was saying with the funerals. And it wasn't the funerals that made me get out. It was the funerals that made me start the podcast. Start the podcast. The, the, I apologize. The, 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 what they call that? Force multiplier element, what made me transition out. I yeah. can run one call and just touch one patient of which 80% really probably didn't need to be calling. nine one in the first place. Or I can sit down with someone like you and thousands of people will hear that conversation. Okay. But yeah, so I, I think that's the problem is it's not one thing. It's everything yes it's autoimmune disease yes it is hands down proven that sleep deprivation causes depression anxiety and all these things that we see suicide ideation these are all compounding factors and then obesity and heart disease and everything if your hormones can't reset and regenerate you're having a complete bodily global response to that sleep depri- uh, deprivation so that's why Our doctors and our nurses that work shifts, that see people die from obesity every day, get fatter and smoke and all this stuff because they are unaware of the impact that the shifts of the very profession they're doing is having to their own, not only physical health, but breaking down their motivation mentally so they don't have the fortitude to get hold of their own health, even though they're literally pulling sheets over patients in the ER like every single day. The sleep is the
0: is such a key for us. I was talking to a therapist I had on. She's actually based out of Florida. Her, she goes by to handle sweary therapy. And we were talking about EMDR. I don't know if you're familiar with EMDR. Yes. I've done a bit of it for myself in my therapy sessions, but we were talking about how it it reorganizes the thoughts and that sleep is what the is the great indexer of thoughts basically so when you get good sleep and you're getting that good rem sleep it is putting those memories and those thoughts in the proper place when that's interrupted is part of why you get those inappropriate not inappropriate but those rambling thoughts or the you get perseverations on thoughts and so then it just, it kind of struck me in that conversation that not only is this leading to cancers and to heart attack and whatever, it's also leading to this to to magnifying the traumas in our head because we're not indexing them properly when we sleep. It goes back to what you just said about sleep. It's that it is that great reset. It's that time to, to get your brain the rest and the, the recovery. And if we're not doing that, nothing is gonna happen for us.
1: Nothing good is going to happen for us. I think what's scary, and this, be, this is well illustrated by the kind of prejudice that was towards suicide, the kind of attitude towards someone that had taken their own life, is you have words like, oh, it was so cowardly that Mm. they did that. How selfish. When you look, and I have this reported, I've had hundreds of people that have been close to, or some actually made the attempt and they survived, have taken their own life. And it's the same thing over and over again. There's one element, obviously, of wanting the suffering to end, of course, but the big resounding element that we don't think about is the burden. They yeah. feel like a burden. So when you don't sleep, you are literally miswiring your brain. So what these people report is, I am such a burden to my family that the world will be better off without me. They would be better off without me. And there's a complete belief in that. And the problem is the healthy brain from the outside goes, what are you talking about? And a perfect example in Florida, we had that couple, both police officers. I think he, he took his own life first. And then I think a week, two weeks later, she took her own life. Hmm. They had a brand new infant child. And now that kid has no parents. So you and I slept and whatever. go, okay, well, what would, you know, why would they do that? That's so stupid. That's so selfish. No, they at some point had a belief that that baby we be better off. What a crazy thought, but that's how miswired the brain becomes through tra- unaddressed trauma, but also through sleep deprivation. It magnifies that. And just to kind of add validity to that argument, if you go through Green Beret selection or do Hell Week in Buds or whatever, they're deliberately depriving you of sleep to get you to quit. And you listen to some of these stories, you know, like I think it was Andy Stumpf was talking about seeing a train in the middle of the ocean when he was on his dinghy. This is only three or four days without sleep. right we're talking about our men and women are chronically deprived over decades so that is what's i think the real thing is that when people say oh think about your family to someone who's suicidal like, they are thinking about their family what we need to get out there as a message is understanding the impact of all these areas including sleep deprivation but also if you are believing that you are a burden to the world There's your fucking red flag. There, yes, that is what we need to be looking at because that's the real warning sign. You start believing that the world is better off without you. You sure as hell need to pick up the phone and call someone as soon as you can.
0: Yeah, I've had a discussion about suicide and around the table at work or in the rig at work, and for years, myself included, it was the same thing. How could you even think about committing suicide? How? What a cowardly thing to do! Or how? What's how selfish are you? And then. I did talk to a couple of people and also listen to a couple of different shows and it comes around to where they find this peace amongst themselves or in their own brain, okay, no, this is the right decision. I am helping somebody by killing myself. And it's just, it's stupefying to to think about. And it did create a different thought process for me and for a bunch of coworkers that, Hey, this is an illness, not, it's not a selfish act.
1: Yeah. You you have homeostasis where everything in the body is in balance. It's the other side. It's chaos. You know what I mean? I always tell people, you want an analogy. When you're whatever, you're up on a building somewhere in a fire and you're towards the edge. Let's say the fire's over so you're kind of not in that flow state. There is that invisible hand pushing you away from the edge. So I don't know if you get this, almost like a kind of tensing in the groin Mm -hmm. area. Don't you do it? Imagine if you got to the point where that hand is now behind you pushing you forward. That's where they are. And even people don't think about this, but actually suicide and homicide are actually, you see these murder suicides or these school shootings or whatever. Again, you stand on the outside and go, how could you go into an elementary school and start shooting children? It doesn't make any sense. That's no. the point. So that these people are in crisis. It doesn't mean at that moment you're going to have sympathy with the shooter. But this mental health epidemic that we've got going on, What's so tragic is our responders are suffering silently and we're compounding. We're slowly clicking that jack higher and higher with each night of sleeplessness and each added trauma that we see and each unaddressed, the day of unaddressed childhood trauma and each element of organizational stress and each relationship problem that some of these people get to the last click on that jack and everything collapses.
0: <laughs> I got more company. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's,
1: uh, my two, you come to a podcaster's house and it's the worst freaking interview you had to do yeah With dogs everywhere, and
0: I'm trying to remember now because now this one's got me distracted thinking.
1: <laughs> Let's oh, hold on, Nini. No, where's you going? Oh, you got me. Watch you. She wants to lie right here, but I, I can let her through. Come on now, stay. Don't you think about it, dog? Lie down. Lie down. Okay.
0: So we talk about sleep and that's a huge piece of it. We don't do ourselves any favors. We don't spend the days off recovering the way we should. And it's, some of that's twofold. Some of that has to do with the fact that we live in areas where we can't afford to just be firefighters. And the other side is we like to go out and enjoy ourselves as well. So there's a, obviously a lot of drinking. There's a lot of extending yourself on your days off and I don't know how you dealt with any of that while you were in the fire service, but Maybe we can talk about that a little bit.
1: As far as extending, I'll give you a perfect example. Before the end of my marriage, my ex was not working. I was working one of the busiest rescues in Orange County, getting my ass handed to me. And then every day off, I was doing a full day as a lifeguard. So one day as a fireman, straight there, lifeguard for two days, and then go back as a fireman. I'll never forget a Skype call with my mom back in England. And she goes, darling, you look like you're dying. Hmm. And that was like a huge eye-opener. I did actually just say, all right, th- th- we need the money, but I must have to figure something out because right. I can feel like I'm just, it's killing me. But I think the problem is there's such a lack of education on sleep, just in general. And people, again, people in, in the right circles are really starting to talk about it. Some good books come out, Lifetime that I talk about with Professor Russell Foster, absolute must read must read but people aren't educated so they don't understand the importance of the of what they're doing on the time off so I, this the reason why they think this conversation has fallen so often is as with so many things whether it's the I mean, the police issue the covid issue whatever people will take a side they'll cling onto their mm. thing <laughs> and then they'll fight they'll die on their sword yeah the reality is the way that we fix this issue in the fire service is we change the, the environment so we changed the work week as we talked about but the absolutely now it's also on the responder what nauseates me and it tends to be people with bugles on their shoulders on their, their collars that say this well if we give them more time off they're just going to work more overtime yep. firstly go fuck yourself yep. who, who the hell made you in charge of someone's entire life Secondly, with the overtime specifically, if you have that much overtime available, shame on you for not managing your fire department properly. So still your problem. But thirdly, on the responder side, you can earn extra money but you have to be very careful how you do it. In an ideal world, go spend time with your family, Mm -hmm. take the time off, surf, fish, whatever it is you wanna do. If you do need to make ends meet, if you're saving for a vacation, if there's a vehicle, boat, whatever, and you understand, okay, this is an extra that I need to do, or like you said, you're just in an area where you do have to cover that. Because I think that a first responder shouldn't have to work a second job. I mean, that financially is another thing that we gotta fix, but understand then, all right, it's okay go landscape, go hang drywall, go whatever, but be in your bed at night. Don't take an overnight ambulance job. Don't go work for a second department. And that's insanity. So we have to educate the employer, but we also do have to educate the responder. What does sleep hygiene look like? What does alcohol do to your night's sleep? If we put that in at the front door and get our men and women to understand that, I think we would really make a difference. But right now, they're so overworked and so overslept that alcohol, drugs, some of these things, they're just the easy fix. And I, I went into alcohol most of my career, not in a binge drinking way, but in an easy unwind at the end of the night. I was always screwing myself on the quality of the sleep. And now you're up at 5 a.m. to drive away down to Orlando to go do it all over again. So unless we're having both of those conversations simultaneously, we're not going to fix the issue.
0: And I think this goes to something, a a much larger subject that we both have, I think, pretty strong feelings about is just a lack of fitness in the country itself. This obesity epidemic is much more important than any pandemic we went through and just getting people to take care of themselves in general and preaching self-care more than anything. It's massive and it needs to be done. I don't need a vaccination. I just need you to learn how to take care of you.
1: Again, that's a two parallel roads. And that's what sickened me in the whole pandemic. And I've talked about this in depth. I've had people on that are educated on the efficacy of the vaccines and where it's working well and everything. I've had people on who were fired because of mandates. I've had both sides. I myself was vaccinated not because of fear of my own health. I had no issue licking some with COVID because I know that I'm in good shape. But I was going to travel. I was going to see my grandmother, who's about to turn 105, 204 mm. at the time. I did it for her. I wasn't scared of the vaccine either. I don't see how that would suddenly cause all the blood vessels in your body to explode, right. personally. But but to have the audacity to say that, that a government caring about people's health, when you had a captive mm. audience and you could have educated so well on nutrition and movement and the importance of nature and community. And the polar opposite was done. They closed the gyms, the beaches, the parks. They stopped families and friends from being around each other. And yet you could get alcohol and fast food delivered to your house. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, but it doesn't matter. You're left, right, up, down, whatever your view is in life. That was never about health. And we could have had the end of the pandemic. We could have got it where... The school, the people that cook the food in schools actually cook again, like Jamie Oliver was trying to do. That all the soda companies and fast food companies are kicked out of our education system. And so you can go to the high street and get your McDonald's, but you can't get it on campus. You can't get Coke or any of that stuff. That we bolster PE programs, how it used to be, and music. That's another mental health outlet is the arts. And what do we see? The polar opposite, yes. PE programs are closed down, kids are wearing masks and just, it was awful, absolutely awful. We have 70% of our country is overweight or obese, 70%. That's a staggering number, yeah. 70%. And when you talked about obesity in the country with COVID outcomes, you were called a heretic at the time. So that, you're absolutely right. Why are we not doing that? Because there's so much money in what gets people fat in the first place and there's so much money in what the pills that they throw at them once they do lose their health. So until we break that corruption, anyone from a government building saying they care about health is just full of shit. I'm sorry. Yes,
0: I completely agree with you. Completely full of shit. And I think another aspect of why we don't preach it is because we're keeping people sedated in the country. So keep them... Eating fast food, watching shitty TV or whatever, and they're not paying attention to what the real issues are going on in the country. That's a firm belief of mine, and that's getting off track of the fire service, but that's a firm belief of mine. Keep them distracted.
1: The proof is in the pudding, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I've said this. Take, and this will trigger some people probably, but take watching sports on television. People, and I had that, it was Bedros Koulian, I love this. He's like, people will know the stats of all their players on their team, and they don't know their own fucking body composition. Yes. What does that tell you? And I'm like, that's exactly it. Reality reality, television and sports and everything. I love playing sports. And occasionally, I I like watching the World Cup every four years. But when that becomes your thing... That's your world. And now as we're hearing the pool for our military, our first responders is getting smaller and smaller because even our youth, a lot of them, if you see, even if they're not obese, you look at the muscle tone. There's not in a lot of them.
0: Yeah, you don't have to be obese to be deconditioned. Though. Or if I say deconditioned. If you've never been conditioned in the first place, then you can't be deconditioned. But no, you're right. I see that because I help with the CPAD at work and I see that it's been the last few years. You notice a sharp decline in the quality of Canada coming through.
1: Yeah, I did mine, I was supposed to be, right when that money was about to run out, when I started the podcast, I went and got all my ducks in a row, Gainesville, just up the street, had, was hiring, and go, I was getting ready. Gators, by mm-hmm. the way. I'm a
0: huge Gator fan. So. I'm, a, I'm a Gator grad, yeah. too. I'm a youth right. grad.
1: And so I'm like, okay, that is my next plan. If i got to go back in the fire service, they're a great department, they got the SWAT medic program, and there's a lot of good things. I was going to go that route. So I did my, I forget what it's called now, the written test, and you know, aced that, and then I went, all right, let me do the CPAT. And I was 46, I think, when I did it, and did it in 720. The guys were like, "You just broke our record." <laughs> and and it, but the thing is, it's not. This isn't like a wow, that's so amazing, Jay. It was just how fucking sad is that? Yeah, I wasn't training for the CPAT. I'm a 46 year old dude that was just covering his ass if he has to go back in the fire service. But I know of people that do all this kind of training and then I have saw it in Orange County, then high-fiving each other because they got 10-19. That sure. is not who you want on that rig responding to your family. And that so if that pool is getting smaller and smaller, then, you know, not only are we taken away from a physical job like ours, but it's a reflection of mental health too. You're an avatar of how you're doing inside. So we've got a lot of very unhappy people out there. And that's heartbreaking. And the fact that that doesn't spur leaders into action, it's so fucking disappointing.
0: I can only speak for the leaders or the department I work for. I can see that the numbers are what they care about, not the quality. And so it's, but the numbers are falling. So we used to have, when I applied for my job, I was one of 3,500 people that applied for 30 positions. Now we have a year round hiring process because we can't get enough to fill those, to fill the gaps, but they believe that they believe that. In a weird way even though they know they can't fill those spots they still have people coming in they believe they still have people coming in to to fill whatever gaps when people seasoned people leave because they get frustrated there's not there's not something on the inside that's trying to hold people to a position and make that position more appealing it's okay see you later don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out it's not oh what can we do or how can we change our environment and our mentality to keep people in in a fire department and keep trained people in a fire department they think they can still supplement with untrained people off the street but they're not getting those untrained people
1: also what happens is with the revolving door department just like marion county where i live and it's funny i was talking to them and i'll get to that in a second but when you've got a department like that like orange county i think when i was there something crazy 50 percent of the department had five years or less yeah so think about that you get those new guys there's so many opportunities to promote so now you've got, say, a couple of probies in the back. You've got an engineer who's got three years and just got promoted. You've got an engineer who's riding up as a lieutenant. So the total of that entire rig might only be seven years experience. You pull up to that structure where a salty veteran would be, we're not going in here because of this. We're not going on that roof because of that. We're not going on that scene because it's not secure yet they're just going to walk in blindly because none of them have ever seen that scene before so that operationally that's the dangerous thing when you allow veterans to leave and you're like oh i'll just replace them with a a young guy with a smaller salary Is you lose that experience you might have that medic that could have saved that child because they're understanding of previous calls and now you've got that brand new guy with no one around him to say hey we need to do this we need to correct this but i had this conversation with a guy from marion and i was talking about adding this shift they were talking about mental health i'm like we really want to have address mental health if you're not having the sleep deprivation conversation then come back to me when you do and i said like, you need to add a fourth shift and he's like, oh we can't even get people to, to fill it at the moment i'm like why do you think that is you were 56 hours a week you got no kelly day you're mandatory your people at the yin yang. So people on the outside are going what's it like so oh, i get to see my family twice two days a week mm. it's fucking awesome so until you fix as you said until you change the environment where you're allowing your people to thrive rather than breaking them down you're gonna it's gonna get worse and worse eventually you're not even gonna have enough people to fill three shifts no. in a period so you know where at what point do you say this has been a false economy we're bleeding money let's actually invest at the front door let's put in a full shift let's raise the bar back up let's challenge the local responders i bet you can't fucking pass our probation get them excited about it i guarantee you you'll have people turning on their heels and coming back into your department but if you do things the same way you've always done them you're going to bleed them to the point where you can't even protect your people anymore
0: yeah and i think a lot of i again I can only speak from my own point of view. I think a lot of departments are experiencing that right now. I know we are. We're, we were hemorrhaging people for the last year. And that's a known thing across Northern Virginia. Trying to fix that, it, that's brilliant, the way you just said it would be, the, would be ideal if we could get someone with balls enough to step up and do that.
1: The false economy is a perfect term. And if you look, Boston, I've got the union president of Boston coming on. They went through O2X and really changed a lot of their wellness stuff. I think they already had a 42-hour work week, if I'm not mistaken. I'll have to check that myself on that. But there are unions that have done great things. There are administrations that have done great things. But I think O2X and Boston have the numbers. And I know there's a place in Florida here I'm going to get one of their guys on. They're about to go from 2448 to 2472. And their thing was, it was so expensive, the way we were doing it, the overtime covering every single, you're paying that guy or girl, You're paying another man or woman to fill that spot a time and a half or double time on holidays or whatever it is. And you've got all the medical bills and the women's premiums and all these things. You've got medical retirement. You've got the lawsuits when we screw up. All these areas. You look at it financially, you would save a shitload of money if you just invested in your people. But that involves you maybe not looking like a rock star and getting a Christmas bonus at the end of that fiscal year. But as the analogy says, planting a tree under which the shade you'll never know. And that's what we need. True leaders that are like, I don't care if i got to fight and tell my city or county, this is going to be expensive today because it's going to save where I live. It's going to improve my department. It's going to improve the response to the, to the people that we serve. And the actual city or county will start saving incredible amount of money down the road. It takes my courage today to affect all that tomorrow.
0: Two things I've been thinking about and I'd bounce the off of you. one is retirement. I've been trying to figure out how you revamp this idea of retirement for the fire service. I don't, I firmly believe we're not programmed to work this job for 20 to 30 years. So how do we, and I don't have an answer for it. That's why I opened it up to a kind of a discussion. I'm not sure how I would suggest revamping it to make it feasible.
1: One of the issues that I see and it breaks my heart when I see this is someone will break out an app and be like, look, I've only got nine years, 11 months and 27 days till I retire.
0: I'll top that. I get irritated to no end when a battalion chief, I hear a battalion chief behind me talk about, I'm here because in a year from now, I'll make X amount more as a re- in my retirement. It's the same thing. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. To play devil's advocate first, If you take away the financial element, the drop, all these things, and it's funny because in my heart of hearts, when I joined the fire service, I never cared about any of that stuff. And it's not, oh, I was just there to serve the people. I was, but I never had this vision that one day I was going to retire and collect a pension. I don't know why everyone else does, but I just didn't. And maybe it was a foreshadowing of what ended up happening. I left after 14 years. But if you didn't have... A pension at 25, or you can retire at 54. Whatever it is, those numbers. How long would you stay? That's your truth. That's how long you should actually be in the fire service. Now I get it. Bills need to be paid, but one of the worst things that we've done is create this fallacy that the only way you can use the skills of a firefighter is to be a firefighter. Because what do people do? They go and teach in the fire academy and they retire. Right. You have a group of men and women, someone picks up the phone, says, hey, I have this emergency and it doesn't involve arresting someone. You have to mitigate whatever the fucking thing is, (laughs) whether it's a squirrel down a drain pipe or a plane that's crashed into a tree or a hiker hanging halfway down. That is us. You know, obviously different skill sets depending on where you work, but that is the most incredible skill set. So it's also empowering the same way as you hear a lot of the veterans struggling. It's understanding that the way we do it now, I don't think we should be there for a long time because it does beat us down. In an ideal world, if we're actually given the work week that allows us to to be there longer, then maybe more like the military, maybe 20 years. But then taking what you've done all those years and having a second career, forget about retirement. You can invest, you can have a pension, whatever. But this whole thing of, oh, I'm just going to go and play golf now. Firstly, you got up every third day or fourth day in an ideal world and you had purpose and you had a reason to stay in shape and you had a reason to stay on top of your protocol book and your ropes and knots and all these things. So to then just go and wait for death on a golf course seems crazy to me, but what an amazing skill set you walk out the back door with. So I think that's the conversation I don't hear people have is what do you want to do now? Do you want to be like Paul Combs? and be a full-time artist now? Do you want to be a ropes guru in some hearing play? I mean, you can do...
0: Be James Gearing doing a podcast. Yeah, be a freaking
1: annoying Englishman, have a a microphone, whatever it is. But we are, there's so much we can do. So it's, what do you want to do? And the thing is, I just feel like, we feel so autonomous in this job because... Especially on a rescue when there's two people. So in in Florida, the, our rescues, what we call them, is the ambulance, but you have all your fire gear as well. And so that's just two firefighters that show up. And you do feel autonomy. Sometimes you're the first to the building, you're the first to the car, whatever it is. But at the same time, when you take a step back, we don't have a lot of autonomy in the fire service because you're told what to wear, how to shave, when to be there, when to go on target solutions, when to test hydrants. So you become neuter a little bit and that sounds weird as a burly firefighter or whatever but we do you have been told exactly what to do for 10 20 30 years so I think that's the problem when we get to the back end we don't believe we can do a lot of shit on our own anymore we just don't because we've been told what to do all that time so I think it's really inspiring the responder to a transition out when they're ready when it's their time And B, empower them to make movies, write a book, become a professional musician, become a joiner, whatever it is, and use that skill set that you had in the fire service in something that you love. And I think with the service side, what you're doing, what I'm doing, you can still serve in so many ways. And I think that's the other important thing. We want to make the world better. We do it in a uniform. There's a million ways to do it outside the uniform as well. I got to plug in. Yeah, I don't want to unplug something either. Yeah, no, you're good. Emma, get down. Come on. I always forget to plug in. It's
0: always something I'm still learning.
1: <laughs> I mean, like I said, it's getting to my house and I've got dogs everywhere. So <laughs> it's just, but this is real world. I always tell people, I'm not looking to be polished like Jocko or Joe. Oh, no. I, what happens when? I don't
0: know about you, but I'm one person. I can't be polished. No, exactly. So no, I
1: don't have an Echo Charles or a Jamie. So, yeah.
0: So along the lines of the retirement, one of the things that's been on my mind is uh, basically a cost loss uh, analysis. So you have 14 years in the fire service, you found your reason to get out. But a lot of people are adamant that they can't get out. And it goes along the lines of, we don't know what we would do outside of the fire service. But I think it also goes along the lines of, it's a sunken cost fa- fallacy. So I've already put X amount of years in. I have to do 20. Um, I need to be invested. I'm already invested. Why would I just jump out of this? And it's a balance that I guess that it's weird. Cause we, we just sat here and talked about losing experienced firefighters, but now I'm also talking about, Hey, once you're experienced, get the fuck out. And I don't mean everybody needs to get out, but there's a general unhappiness among some firefighters that i talk talked to across the board. And then I ask, why are you still doing it? Oh, because I have to. Trying to teach people that, no, you don't have to. And that's what we just talked about with the retirement. You don't have to. And I don't know where to find that balance of, okay, we need X amount. We do need experience in the fire service because that's a must. That's how you pass on education. That's how you pass on. As much as you might hate some traditions, that's how you pass on tradition. But we also don't need people
1: feeling like they have to stay because that doesn't bode well for the health of a department. No. And that's the thing is that you said that fired up firefighter with experience is an asset that disgruntled older firefighter and saying just disgruntled, I'm not saying all of the firefighters are disgruntled, but the disgruntled responder is a cancer in a fire service. Yes. You know, where do you get to that point where that person transitions out before they become trans- disgruntled? I forget what it was now, but I put a post on recently. I think it was about just my gratitude for being able to wake up in my own bed and that kind of thing. And there was comments like, we've only got 10 years to go or whatever. And and my response was, no, you do not No, you don't have any years to go. You could literally stop tomorrow. And the funny thing about fire service, when I did my last time in Orange County, which was the one before my last one, I wrote about it in the book. I'd actually put my paper in. We had a code, came back and basically got shafted yet again it Was a you know, rescue medic. And the way it works down here, you get stuck on the box. Love being a medic, but I'm also a firefighter. I need to have time on the engine to make sure my skills are sharp. And I do ride up as an engineer. And got the shaft again, you're back on the box. And I like, you know what? I think I'm done. <laughs> I'd put my stuff in for, a, for another department. I got everything except the medical. I'm like, I'm not gonna fail the medical. And if I do, then it's my own fault. But so I put my papers in. Anyway, two more horrendous things happen in that shift but so i don't know i was even using that example but anyway so with this whole i have x amount of time to go you oh that's what i was going to say so with the fire service as well you don't have to put in two weeks because think about it it doesn't change anything they got to hire someone and put them through an academy so even your two weeks is bullshit you could literally say today is my last shift and then i'm retiring or i'm transitioning whatever But one thing that I I notice is around in the fire service in a busy department, I think around the 10 year mark is where you start to crest a little bit. You haven't seen everything, you haven't done anything, but you've seen a lot and you've done a lot by that point. And what you get from each call starts to diminish. You've been on hundreds of fires and hundreds of wrecks and God knows how many cardiac arrests. So now you're starting to take smaller and smaller pieces. So if you're going to leave the fire service as it is and just fucking murder your people. I'd say ten ten years. It's time where you've still got your health. It's time right. to transition out. And you look at the military, like a couple of couple of enlistments, like an eight year period. That's pretty respectable in the military. It it's is. very rare you hear someone did 20. Right. So yeah, so it's like understanding that you're being a slave to the pension. You're not yes. actually doing what you dreamed of doing when you are in fire academy anymore. Now you're just counting down the years and thinking about Cobra and Drop and all these things. There's nothing to do with service. So if you love serving and you've tired of this particular profession and you fix things, you, know, you might be tired because of stress and everything, but if you've lost that love, then transition out in right. you know, no time like the present, because how many people have gone to different careers and made way more money than they ever would have collecting off their pension? No,
0: that, there's an aspect to it of adult learning still, and that, that leads to a, a quality of life later down the road. Anyway, it keeps your mind sharp, keeps, as you learn, you, you stay sharp. And that's healthier for you as you age. I know you got to get to pick your son up here pretty soon, so I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask everybody. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard the show, and it doesn't matter to me. I just ask everybody two questions. One has to do with an everyday carry. And the reason I ask that question is because I've called the show The Things We All Carry. As a firefighter, you carried everything into a call that you needed, but when you came out of that call, you carried something with you that impacted you from that call. Putting those aside, what's something that you would carry on your person every day that you feel naked without?
1: So not so much on my person, but I've remained a rescue Randy. So I feel naked without the tools that I can use to save a life. So I don't carry them specifically on my personal I'm I'm absolute minimalist when I'm walking around and wear my wedding ring usually. And that's right. my wife's looking. I'm remarried happily. But in my car, I will have a pistol because again, God forbid, I'm in a place where that would be the tool that mm-hmm. would possibly save a life. I don't walk around thinking I'm John Rambo, quite the opposite. But I have tourniquets. I have a mask. I have a lockout kit. I have a trauma kit. So that's really it's wanting to be there on someone's worst day and having the skill set to actually save a life. So this is more of a kind of operational answer to your question, but it's true. I think the most frustrating thing would be to have transitioned out being a medic or a firefighter and not having the tools to use. So I like I have a window punch. You know, basically I'm not gonna carry right. a 24 foot ladder on right. my roof or it would be know, awkward. Spreaders. <laughs> But yeah, so that's it. Like still, I think this is the thing too. When people say a Marine is never retired, fucking A to the fire service too. How can you not be a firefighter? You're a fireman. You retired 10 years ago. Let's say you are a medic too. And there's an overturned car yeah, on the freeway. Are you going to drive by? Yeah, I'm no, collecting none, my retirement. No.
0: None of us are going to do that.
1: No. So to me, that makes it exciting that you can still keep your training. Pick and choose what you, you want to train on, That what would be valuable as a someone who's not being paid to be on a rig anymore. But keep up your, I keep up my medic license. And every two years, I got to do my research this year again. Take trauma classes. Even I'd love to go do a VMR class again, extrication class. Because even though I'm not going to have those tools on my rig, the hand tools and those kind of things, you never know. It, that one little thing might help. Swimming, lifeguarding, all these areas. So to me, that's it. I keep being a responder. You're just not getting paid for it anymore.
0: I, th- I love that answer. I think that's perfect. And I've taken a page from your playbook a little bit. I ask everybody about a book they wanna suggest.
1: Up until recently, I would have had some others, which I will say as well, but Lifetime, Russell Foster, talks about the sleep deprivation issue for a long time now. And we're talking about annoying things people say. One thing that people say is, oh, you talk about the 42 hour week and being better than the 56. Do you have studies? And so my first reaction is, did you just fucking ask me that? <laughs> is working two more full days a week for exactly. a firefighter more detrimental? And extrapolate that over a year and yeah. or a career. Or exactly, decades. But... Russell is a neuroscientist, one of the fathers of circadian rhythm and sleep medicine, Mm -hmm. and he's just written this book, and he talks about in depth about shifts and the damage that sleep deprivation does. He talks about, even he works a lot with our blind veterans. So you have veterans whose Mm. eyes are still intact. Yes, Even though they're blind, they can still detect daylight and nighttime, so they have a circadian rhythm. Our men and women who anatomically were destroyed in their eyes, they're in this kind of timeless floating around, which, which is horrendous. So he's really embedded in the military first responder arena too. So definitely get that. Sebastian Junger's tribe is another one. Yes. That is incredible. Johan Hari's lost connections and oh my goodness. Chasing the scream. Okay. Excellent books as well. So I could give you a thousand. Those are a few
0: off the top of my head. I appreciate those. Those are perfect. And I appreciate you letting me come into your home and have a conversation. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, I appreciate the fact that you helped me along this journey you. You gave me that number to call and gave me some advice and I appreciate that immensely.
1: Yeah. Thank you, mate. And for everyone listening, we will be turning the microphone around the other way and <laughs> Stack will be on my show very we'll soon. will see how
0: I do with that. <laughs> All righty, sir. Thank you very much. Oh, wait, one last thing.
1: Tell people where they can find you. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the podcast is called Behind the Shield. There are two Behind the Shields. One is a kind of Dungeons & Dragons podcast that was there before mine, so kudos to them. My one, Accent Halligan on the logo, so you can't miss it. The book I wrote, One More Light, you can find that on all the Amazon stuff too. And then on Instagram, Behind the Shield Nine One One is the best place. Perfect. All right, then we're done. I appreciate it. We're out. Thank you. Cheers.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.